Thank you for, for letting me be here tonight and for coming along this evening. The, the topic, as you'll have seen, is, is God anti-gay. I'm sure that's not news to you, that that's what we're thinking about this evening. Um, so thank you for caring about this, this issue. Thank you for caring about this question. Uh, when we think about this question, we're not thinking about a, a topic or an abstract idea. We're thinking about people, and I'm sure the vast majority, maybe, maybe all of us uh, in this room, have people that are, are very near and dear to us who would identify as gay. And so when we hear a question like, is God anti-gay, we immediately think of, of faces of people that we love. And for some of us, it's, it's even closer to home. And that's not just that there's someone in our close orbit who would describe themselves as gay, but maybe this has been part of our own lived experience as well. So whoever you are and whatever your kind of distance or proximity is to some of these things personally, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Um, really glad we get to have this, this opportunity to think together. Um, uh, I should really say that for me, this has been part of my own journey as well. Um, I was a teenager, this is going to age me catastrophically to, to you guys, but I was a, a teenager in the uh, early 90s, and uh, it was a very different world then, a very different kind of cultural setting. But as I was going through my teenage years, I, I gradually became aware that I was attracted to guys and not attracted to girls. Uh, that wasn't something I, I chose. It was just something I began to, to recognize as I, as I grew. Um, it took me a long time to, to realize that was what was going on, partly because the cultural context at the time didn't really allow for these kinds of conversations. Um, I didn't have anyone I could process things with. I had to do this all in my own little head. And also, I'm just slow generally, so it took a, a, a few years for the penny to, to drop about what was going on. Uh, but the first, the first indication, I think looking back, I was about 14 or 15. Uh, my best friend at uh, secondary school at the time, do you call it secondary school here? High school? High school. My best friend at high school at the time. I just renamed my school. Um, I remember him telling us he had just got together with his first ever girlfriend. They had just started dating. And it was a, it was a Monday morning. We were all catching up on each other's news from the weekend. And he was saying to the rest of us, yeah, I just started going out with this, this girl. We're, we're now kind of dating. And I remember all of my friends kind of being really happy for him, um, kind of congratulating him, enthusing. And we're, we're English, so there's a very, you know, we're not very expressive. So for us to be enthusiastic is to go, huh. <laughs> okay, that's, that's about as far as it goes for us guys. So my, my friends were, were kind of happy for him, and I just felt crushed inside, and I had no idea why. I hadn't consciously thought of my friend in any way that was romantic or, or kind of physical, but somehow the idea of him being really close to somebody else just kind of left me feeling profoundly gutted and, and, and crushed. And over the next couple of years, I just began to realize that I was just, you know, developing in a way that was different to my friends. Um, my high school, now, uh, was, was a boys' school, so there were only two things we ever really talked about. One was sport, one was girls. Um, on the sport front, you'll have gathered from the fact that I'm English that I'm not very good at sport, because none of us are, apparently. <laughs> we, 
we invent the games that other people then get to beat us at, which <laughs> we need to rethink that. I think we need to invent a sport, keep it really quiet for about 150 years, get really good at it, and then start playing competitively with, with you guys. But uh, I'm no good at sports. Um, I'm, I'm not coordinated. I'm not balanced. Um, I think my center of gravity is outside of my body because anytime I need to sort of be able to do something like that, I just can't. So I wasn't very good at talking about sports. And I began to realize I wasn't very good at talking about girls either because the, the primary conversation among us all was, who do you like? Who are you pursuing? And as that, as that question would work its way around the circle of us who were chatting together, I would feel a rising level of anxiety. Because I remember thinking, well, I can't tell the truth. I can't have no answer to this question. And I certainly can't have an answer that isn't directed towards a girl. And so I would try to change the subject, which just didn't work because, you know, who do you like, who do you like, who do you like, Sam? And I'd be like, hey, did you guys see Star Trek last night? <laughs> no. Anyway, Sam, who do, who do you like? Um, I did watch Star Trek. I know there's a you know, correlation sometimes between Star Trek and singleness. In my case, it is actually true, but um, that's a story for another day. Um, I went to, this is, this is not what I'm meant to be talking about tonight, but I did, I did go once to a Star Trek convention in London for purely anthropological reasons, just to, just to study what would happen. And it made the news, it made the national news because there was a, a wedding at the convention officiated in Klingon. <laughs> and I still don't know if it made the news because, hey, this is a wedding that's been officiated in Klingon, or because two Star Trek fans have actually got married. <laughs> it could, could go either way. But anyway, that was me. That is me. I still, I still love Star Trek. So anyway, the, the question would, would, would make its way round to me. And I'd just have to think, and my brain would quickly go, OK, Sam, they're asking you the question. Just think of any girl's name, think of one right now, and say it out loud. So they would go, Sam, who do you like? And my brain would go, uh, Denise. Denise. I like Denise. And that would let me off the hook for about three seconds before someone said, oh, so who is she? And then I'd have to scramble again and think, um, yeah, she's, uh, I don't think you know her. She's not from around here, actually. She's, she's from Sweden. <laughs> so you won't know her. You won't ever meet her. Um, Denise is not a traditional Swedish girl's name, as far as I'm aware, but none of us picked up on that fact. But it was a, it was a painful time of life. I just wanted to fit in. I already had a, a lot of self-consciousness and social anxiety anyway, and this just made it worse because... One of the things that seemed to be so defining for my friendship group was the feelings we had for girls. And I just couldn't join in with that. And I was terrified that somehow people would, would pick up on that, that they would be able to tell that I, I didn't seem to have those feelings. And if people kind of knew that, it could be game over. Uh, when I was 17, I was waiting for the, the bus home at the end of the day. Uh, and as I was stood waiting for the bus, my brain was just kind of ticking things over. And I remember thinking to myself, and it was the first time this thought had occurred to me so starkly, but I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm gay. And as soon as that thought landed in my brain, I, I quickly thought, well, well, yeah, that's what's going on here. 
I, I don't have those romantic and, and physical feelings for the girls that I'm friends with. I, I do have those feelings for one or two of the guys I'm friends with. And as soon as that sunk in, I then started to think, okay, what am I going to do with that? And again, I, I, at that point, early 90s, I knew one thing I couldn't do was tell my friends. Uh, because I, I had seen guys at my high school being bullied for being gay. Whether they were gay or not, or it was just something people assumed about them, it clearly wasn't something that was going to be welcomed. But I was applying for universities, and the universities I was applying for were in different cities, and had in those days LGB societies. So I remember thinking, well, maybe this is something I can, I can explore when I'm at university. I'll go to one of those groups, and that will be a kind of safe environment to, to think about these things, to explore my sexual feelings, to think about relationships, and so on. So that was my plan. But in between standing at that bus stop and arriving at university, something else happened to me which I hadn't planned for, which is I became a Christian. I hadn't been raised going to church, hadn't really thought much about Christian things, but I had a couple of really good friends who were Christians, and they were people who, who impressed me. Uh, I knew that I could trust them, I knew if they said something, they meant it. And a couple of times they said to me, hey, do you wanna to come to our, our church youth group? And most of the time I would say no, because I was thinking, I'm not, not massively interested in thinking about religion, but, you know, thanks for asking. But I finished my final exams of high school, as we all know that's what it's called, and I had nothing else to do for a long summer. And again, these friends said, hey, do you want to come to our youth group this week? And I thought, I, I can't think of any reasons not to go, so I may as well just go. And then I was thinking, well, actually, you know, I respect these two friends. It's probably good for me to find out what it is they're into. I want to, you know, I want to honor their friendship and find out what makes them tick, find out more about what they believe. I figure that's, that's a way to be a good friend to them. I wasn't seeking. I wasn't spiritually searching. I just thought, yeah, I'll find out more about what they believe, and that will help me understand them better and, and be a good friend to them. So I went to the youth group, and there was a usual kind of half-burnt, half-frozen pizza, a pool table that kind of wobbled, all those kinds of things. And there was a presentation of the Christian message. And I remember thinking immediately, oh, this isn't what I thought Christianity was. I had grown up with the idea that Christianity was about God coming to congratulate good people. But I was hearing a message from some of the things that Jesus said in the Bible that made it very clear Christianity was about God coming to find lost people. And something inside of me thought, lost. I, I think I might be one of those people. Not because of what I'd been realizing about my sexuality, and that didn't enter into that particular equation, but I just, I suddenly realized if there, if there really was a God, if God really had made me, I had no idea who he was. And I figured, firstly, I'm probably supposed to know who he is. And secondly, it's probably my fault that I don't. And so I remember thinking, if God is there, then by definition, I'm lost. I don't know him. I don't know my way home. And so I became interested in, in the message of Jesus and 
over the next few weeks heard more about his, his message, his death, his resurrection, and, and began to realize, I think this is someone I want to build my life on. This is someone I want to trust and follow. So as I was turning 18, at the end of my final year at high school, I, I became a Christian. I thought, okay, I don't know how you're supposed to do this, but from today, I now want to follow Jesus. Uh, is there an application form? Do I have to sign something? I just knew I wanted to follow Jesus. And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what the Christian life is meant to look like. I didn't know what it would involve, what he said, what he thought. I just knew I wanted to follow him. But as someone who had only just recently come to recognize his own sexual feelings, obviously one of the big questions I had as a brand new disciple of Jesus was, well, I, I wonder what he thinks about this. And I didn't know. I didn't even know if he said anything about sexuality. But I thought, I know I want to follow him. Let's see if this is a thing that he has anything to say about. And many of us today perhaps might also think, well, actually Jesus is kind of neutral when it comes to these issues. Uh, there's a meme that often goes around about how Jesus had nothing to say about sexuality. He was kind of neutral. And so therefore the church should have a bit more kind of flexibility and open-mindedness. Um, but I thought, I need to find out what Jesus thinks. Uh, this is obviously something that's significant in my own life. It'd be good to find out what he says. And so I started reading a gospel. I, I figured that's the best way to find out what Jesus thinks and didn't know anything else about the Bible, but I saw that Matthew was the first one. So I thought, well, I'll start there because it's first. So I started reading through Matthew's gospel and I want to share with you a couple of quick verses where Jesus does have things to say about sexuality. He doesn't talk about sexuality often. It's not the kind of focus of his message. But there are a couple of times where Jesus does mention it. And when he does, what he says is actually very significant. So the first one is uh, in the passage Matthew 15, uh, verses 19 and 20, um, which is there, I think. Yes. Um, if you want to look it up on your phone or check it out later on, you can do that as well. But in this passage, Jesus is talking to a group of people called the Pharisees. They were the sort of, the really kind of signed up, committed, we take this very seriously kind of group of religious people at the time. And they were really, really serious about sin. They really believed in sin. And the Pharisees thought of sin as being a bit like a virus. It, it's out there, and you've just really got to avoid it. You don't want to catch it, if you like. And so they had a whole system of, of people and objects and places that you would avoid so that you weren't contaminated by sin. They were trying to keep themselves separate and pure. And Jesus says something to them that that is devastating to that way of thinking. Because Jesus says here in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So that is devastating because Jesus is saying, listen, sin is not this thing that's out there and, and you have to avoid it. Sin is something that's in each of our hearts. And so if you really want to avoid sin, you've got to avoid yourself. Because the human heart is a contagion for sin. Out of the heart come evil thoughts and all these other things that spoil life. Now that was devastating to Pharisees. You can see 
you know, eventually why they wanted him killed. But I want to suggest it's, it's actually very challenging for us as well. Because in our kind of cultural time, we tend to think that the way to full life, to real life, the way to really live is to look deep inside your heart. And then you, you will discover who you truly are. And when you've discovered who you truly are and no one else can tell you what that is, you've got to figure that out for yourself. Once you've discovered that, you've got to be true to yourself. That's the message we hear so often. Friends of mine with young kids who have to watch Disney movies much more than I do tell me that is the message of every Disney movie in the last 15 years. You've got to find out who you are and then be true to that self. Well, Jesus is saying here, if we look deep inside our hearts, we won't find the solution to our angst. We'll find the cause of it. Because Jesus is saying our hearts aren't right. It is out of our hearts that come all the stuff that make life messy. And Jesus is saying this is the case for every one of us. He's not singling anyone out here. This is just the human condition. Our hearts are not right. And he gives us as evidence that our hearts aren't right some of the things that float up to the surface of our lifestyles that are indicators that our hearts aren't right. This is just a sampling of some of those things. Jesus could have mentioned other things. But in this passage, he mentions evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And all of us are somewhere in that list. Some of us are, you know, we're in that list multiple times. And there's a phrase there that we have, sexual immorality. Uh, Matthew wrote his gospel in Greek. We've translated it into English, because people like me can't speak Greek. And the word that we've translated as sexual immorality is a Greek word, porneia. And if that word sounds familiar and you're wondering if you know more New Testament Greek than you actually do, uh, it's because porneia was a Greek word that simply meant all sexual activity outside of marriage. And it's where we get the word pornography from. That's kind of evolved into to that meaning for us. But when Jesus says sexual immorality here, he's saying any kind of sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage. So one of the first things I began to realize as a new Christian is that, oh, okay, I'd sort of heard vaguely somewhere about Christians having a thing about sex outside of marriage. I guess that's where that's come from. Jesus, Jesus says that. Uh, second passage is, is Matthew 19. This is the second of, of two, in case you're wondering if I'm going to spend hours going through all of Matthew's gospel, which would be a great thing to do. But Matthew chapter 19 is another place where Jesus says some really significant things. Uh, again, the Pharisees are around. They're, they're, they're trying to get one over Jesus. They already don't like him. So they're trying to get him in a kind of gotcha moment. And so they've, they've come up with a question that was a really controversial issue of the day, uh, which was divorce. Uh, this was the big hot potato. This was the thing Twitter was kind of exploding with at the time. Can you divorce your wife for any reason? Or can you only divorce your wife for certain reasons? And given the culture it was then, it was always that way around. If you're a woman, you couldn't divorce your husband. He could divorce you. And the question was, what are the, what are the kind of appropriate grounds for divorce? How, how, kind of, 
How strict are we going to be? And everyone was kind of arguing about that. So they thought, if we can just get Jesus to say something on the record about this issue, we can use it against him. So we're told they, they went up to Jesus to test him, to try to trick him. And it's amazing. God has, for the first time in human history, made himself physically available. He's come into this world as a human being such that people can go up to him and ask him a question. And just imagine Jesus is there and you can ask him anything you can think of. And what they do is think, ah, let's try and get him. Because that is how dumb we are. God actually turns up and gives us access and we think, okay, but we're going to use this to kind of show that we're right and you're wrong. And that you don't mess with our way of thinking. So they asked the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife at any cause? Jesus answers in the next verse, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, Jesus is referencing back to, to Genesis chapter 1 where we're told that God made us in his image as male and female, okay? Jesus continues, verse 5, and said, Therefore a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what's going on? Uh, Jesus is asked about divorce. He answers by talking about marriage, because Jesus is saying you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But notice Jesus doesn't just answer by saying, you know, well, marriage is the union of, of two humans, and that union is a really serious thing, and you can't just be kind of flippant about this. No, Jesus goes a step back further and reminds us that God has made us from the beginning male and female. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage, and you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand that God has made us male and female. So think about the logic here. Jesus begins, have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made us male and female? Uh, God has made us as human beings, as, as those who are sexually differentiated between male and female. <coughs> Jesus takes that observation and then says, because of that, therefore, someone leaves their parents and gets married and then has a life with their spouse. Jesus is saying, because this is how God has made us, therefore, we have this thing called marriage. Now, Jesus is not saying that because God has made us male and female, therefore, all of us have to get married. Okay, your grandmother thinks that, uh, but that is not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus himself was not married. No, what Jesus is saying is you can only have this thing called marriage because we're sexually different. Marriage depends on sexual difference. So one of the things we see going on in this passage is that Jesus defines marriage as being necessarily between a male and a female, a man and a woman. 
Now, I, I don't think there is a more countercultural thing I can show you from the lips of Jesus than that. Uh, for so many people in our, our world today, that is not just something they might not agree with, but actually that is something that sounds deeply offensive. So let me just say a couple of things about what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the first thing to say is that the reason, the reason what Jesus says here is so countercultural is because what Jesus says about marriage has always been countercultural. In every culture, in every place and time, some aspects of what Jesus says about marriage has rubbed people up the wrong way. In some cultures, it's offensive because Jesus says marriage is a man and a woman and not a man and several women. That's offensive to some cultures. In other cultures, the offense is because as you unpack what Jesus means about marriage, you, you realize one of the things that is a kind of a Christian understanding of marriage is that the husband is meant to love his wife sacrificially. He's not meant to lord it over her, to dominate her, still less to abuse her and physically harm her. Now, in some cultures, that is offensive. And for many of us today, the offense is that Jesus isn't saying marriage can be between two people of the same sex or even more than two in some kind of combination. No, Jesus is saying that marriage is definitionally between a man and a woman. But here's the second thing I need to say on that, and it's, it's Jesus is not being arbitrary here. Uh, we can read these verses and think, oh, yeah, well, well, of course, you know, Jesus was a product of, of that first century kind of culture at that time. That's the sort of framework people thought in, and so, of course, Jesus is, is going to speak in, in a way that fits in with that framework. But the trouble is, we, we see throughout the gospel Jesus is really happy to go against his own culture. Again, his own culture had him crucified. Jesus was quite prepared to contradict the way people around him thought and spoke. So it's not like Jesus is locked into this way of thinking. And nor is what he is saying arbitrary. It's not as if Jesus is thinking, well, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to say something about marriage at some point. I'm going to have to come down one way or another. It's not like a politician who's kind of sniffing the wind and thinking, what's my opinion going to be on this? And I'll, I'll kind of see which, which, which way works best. Jesus is not kind of mentally flipping a coin going, okay, which, which is it going to be for me? And the reason that's not the case is throughout the whole of the Bible, the union between a man and a woman has pointed to something else. It's been a picture of something else. From the very opening of the Bible to the very closing pages, the union of a man and a woman has been a union, a, sorry, a picture of the union, eventual union between heaven and earth. Because Genesis 1 opens with God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the things we learn is in the Bible is that heaven and earth belong together. They're, they're meant for each other. Life on earth is meant to be heavenly. The very things that break our hearts about living in this world 
are the very things about which our world is not heavenly. The injustice, the pain, the warfare, the poverty, all of it. We live in a very unheavenly world. And here's the interesting thing. This is the only kind of world any of us have ever lived in. And yet we instinctively find ourselves saying, the world shouldn't be like this. We have a deep sense within us that we're meant for a different kind of world. And the reason is because we are. We were meant for a world that was heavenly. Jesus has us pray in the Lord's Prayer. If you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, one of the lines is, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Stuff on earth is meant to be done in the way that it would be done in heaven. It's meant to be heavenly down here. And one of God's ways of showing us that that is eventually going to happen, that there will eventually be a union of heaven and earth, is he's, he's built into the fabric of human behavior a union between a man and a woman, between two parties that are necessarily different, that represents eventually heaven and earth coming together through Jesus. And so the Bible ends with, with a wedding. The wedding of, of the lamb and his bride, which is, that's weird language if you're not familiar with the Bible. It's, a, it's talking about Jesus and his people. The final chapter of the Bible talks about the new Jerusalem, the new kind of community of God's people, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth like a bride adorned for a husband. You keep having this interplay between what God is doing through Jesus and it being like a marriage that Jesus is coming to us, he calls himself a bridegroom because he's come to be the one who is bringing heaven with him and uniting us with it. Now, we don't have to agree with that. I just want to show you that is part of why the Bible privileges that particular union with the word marriage. That is one of the things it's meant to point to. So, back to me being a Christian, I was just beginning to kind of piece together some of the big things that Jesus says about this part of life, and I've, I've come to realize Jesus says sex outside of marriage is, is not right, and I was like, okay, that's fair enough, I've heard stuff about that already, that isn't, isn't news to me. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is saying marriage is between a man and a woman, and so therefore, there's not going to be a way, if I'm following Jesus for me to express these particular sexual and romantic desires. Or at least not to do that with integrity. Because I can't say I'm following Jesus if I'm not actually following Jesus. And so by this stage, I then had to make a decision. Now that I know that's where Jesus lands, that that's what Jesus says, I then need to think, well, okay, what do I do with that? Do I, do I continue being a Christian now that I know this? Or do I, do I ditch Jesus and think, okay, you know, we had a fair run, it's, it's not you, it's me, but actually I, I really want to explore this part of my life. I had to make a decision. And the fact that I'm speaking to you in a church is probably going to be a bit of a spoiler as what that decision was, that I decided to continue to be a follower of Jesus. And here's the thing. For, for most people today, that decision, if it was presented to someone, it's a choice between 
kind of running with and exploring your sexual feelings and, and being a Christian, most people would say, well, that, that is an obvious decision and it's not going to be the Christian option. Because for so many of us, actually expressing your sexuality is one of the most significant and important things you can do as a human being. Uh, People would go so far as to say, actually, if you're not doing that, you're not being a healthy human being. It's actually bad for you not to do this. And so it would be a no-brainer for people thinking, well, religion or sexual fulfillment, sexual fulfillment has got to be the answer. So I just want to spend the the remainder of this, this presentation explaining why I chose Jesus. And there are three quick reasons why. Uh, The first is because of who Jesus is. And that sounds obvious, but it actually is the key thing to it all. Um, If we think of it as the decision between sexual fulfillment and a religion, we're not actually understanding what is going on because Jesus to Christians is not just a religious leader. Uh, we, We believe he's our savior. We believe he's our creator. Now, that changes things. Jesus is not some kind of opinionated religious leader who kind of turns up as a third party and starts telling everyone how to live. According to Jesus, he made you. And when the the Bible talks about God making us, it doesn't simply mean God assembled you. You know, there's like a flat pat furniture thing. God just happened to be walking past and all the pieces were there and he had an Allen key on him. So he thought, well, I'll, I'll put this person together and kind of assemble you in part. No, when, when it talks about God making you, what it means is this: God came up with the idea of you. God thought you up. And the Bible tells me he was having a good day when he did, when he thought up the idea of you. That's what it means for him to have made us. And it means Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. It means Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. We see in the Bible, Jesus is even more committed to your ultimate joy than even you are. So committed, in fact, he was willing to hang on a cross and die for you and to rise again from death for you. Now, you may or may not believe that, but I hope you can see if that is true, it would make sense to follow him, even if following him means saying no to some things that feel like a pretty big deal to us. Um, I've got a lot of friends who are, are not Christians, and, you know, occasionally we'll talk about some of these things, and they'll, they'll, they'll still say, so tell, tell me what, again why you're not dating a guy. And I have to say to them, listen, you know, I get that this is weird. I really do. Um, But you're not going to understand the way I live unless you understand who Jesus is to me. 
if you understand who Jesus is to me, it might start just to make a bit of sense. That's the case for any Christian. Any Christian in the room, your life will not make sense to someone who doesn't know Jesus because you've got to know who Jesus is to make sense of the way we live for him. Uh, a friend of mine has, a, in her office, there's a little saying on the wall by her desk, and the saying is, those who hear music think the dancers mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. By the way, that's true. If you watch a music video without the sound, <laughs> it's weird. Put the sound back up, you're like, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. But it's true, if we don't get who Jesus is and what Christians are doing with their lives is not going to make much sense. But it also means this, you're not going to change my mind on what I believe about marriage or sexual ethics unless you change my mind about who Jesus is. Um, I occasionally speak at different, you know, university contexts and that kind of thing in, in the States and the UK, where obviously the vast majority of people do not think the way I think about these issues. And occasionally, well, often, all the time, people will come up to me with, with some version of, how on earth can you think that today? You just can't have those beliefs about marriage today. And I'll say, I know. I really do know. I get it. I promise you I understand. But I'll say to them, here's the thing. You may not realize you're doing this, but you're actually telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus. Because I have these convictions because I'm following him. And this is what he says. I believe what I believe about this because I believe what I believe about Jesus. So if you want me to change my mind, you actually, I have to stop following him. Do you have the authority to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus? And most people, when I've explained that, will go, well, okay, I didn't, I didn't realize that was what was going on. No, I'm not going to tell you to stop being a follower of Jesus. But every now and then, someone will say, yeah, yeah, if that's what Jesus teaches, you should not follow Jesus. And listen, the response to that for me is very, very easy. I'll just say, okay, you just have to tell me what you've got going for you, that Jesus doesn't have going for him, that means I should follow what you say in this area, not what he says. Okay, he died on a cross and rose again for me. That's where the bar is currently set. If, you, if you've got more to offer than that, if you can improve on that, I'm seriously, I'm genuinely interested. <laughs> when we get who Jesus is, actually we will make, we will want to make, we will be willing to make really counterintuitive decisions about our lives because we start to believe imperfectly and inconsistently in all of that, but we start to believe Jesus might know more about running my life than me. And I start to trust him about that. I start to think, actually, he, God was the one who invented sexuality. That wasn't, we didn't discover sex behind God's back. This was his idea to give us sexual energy as human beings. And maybe he knows more about this than I do. But because of who Jesus is, I feel able to trust him. 
Now, here's the second reason I, I chose Jesus, and this is because of how Jesus calls all of us. Uh, you may well know it's a fairly famous saying of Jesus, but he says in Mark 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, you may not be, but you may have heard those words because they've, they've kind of become, they've become well known. And I want to suggest that the key word in that whole sentence is the word anyone. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone is going to be a follower of me, anyone is going to have to deny themselves and take up their cross. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't end up doing that in some way. Denying self means saying quite a profound no to some of the deepest longings and yearnings of our own hearts. And Jesus says that is part of being a, a disciple. He doesn't bury this in the small print. He doesn't wait till you've signed up and joined him and then kind of hit you with it. He's, he's honest. He's up front. If you're going to follow me, you will have to deny self and take up your cross. But one of the things we realize as we, as we spend time following Jesus is that denying self doesn't mean that I become less of who I am. I don't become a kind of non-person. Weirdly, in a way I don't fully understand but can, can totally see, the more I deny myself and follow Jesus, the more I actually become the me I was always supposed to be. Okay, all of us have some sense, if you're not a complete narcissist, that you're not the best version of you you sense you could be. We're just not very good at being people. And even if we don't have any religious convictions, we sense, okay, there's a version of me that's better than this. And in our better moments, in our more realistic moments, we're aware of that. But even our own standards, we don't live up to and Jesus is saying, actually, if we, if we follow the one who thought us up in the first place, that is going to be the key to discovering who we truly are. And so, again, I don't quite know how this works. I just know that he somehow pulls this off. If you were to take 50 Christians and make them more like Jesus, they wouldn't become more like each other. Each of them would become more like themselves. Uh, Jesus says in the next bit there, the next uh, verse after that, he says... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, again, Jesus is being upfront. Some of you have experienced this already. Some of you won't, but you may well do if you're a Christian. Jesus is saying there are going to be times when it feels like he's killing you. There are going to be times when it feels like he's, he's asking you to make a decision that is actually taking life away from you. He's honest about that. And yet, again, as we, as we go on in the Christian life, we begin to realize that those very moments, Jesus isn't taking life away from us. He's giving life to us. But the key thing, again, is this is the case for anyone who's going to be a Christian. Uh, someone said to me once, so are, you saying, are you saying that Jesus wants me to give, give him my sexuality? And I thought about it for a moment and said, no. 
No, it's, it's actually worse than that. Jesus wants your whole life. Jesus is demanding everything of all of us. <laughs> and this is very Jesus-y of him to do this, but he just assumes he has a right to the whole of your life. And he assumes it'll be so much better if you give it over to him. He assumes he is so good that there is no part of your life that will be improved ultimately by holding it back from him. That's just a kind of audacious claim that is, is typical for Jesus to make. It's just a regular Tuesday afternoon if Jesus has said something that, that absurd. But one of the things I started to realize as a, as a young Christian is actually, yeah, I, I can feel how in my life it's going to be yeah, it's going to be costly to follow Jesus. That, that, the way he wants me to live, I can feel how that's going to pinch a bit. But I was already realizing this is the case for everyone. It will, will vary what that looks like from person to person, but it's going to be the same for all of us. Following Jesus will be costly and profoundly worth it, he says. So let me just be really blunt with you. If you think the cost of this, if you're, say, a Christian in the room and you think the cost of discipleship is too high for your LGBTQ friends, it just means you haven't started counting the cost of discipleship in your own life yet. Because Jesus is demanding actually the same thing of all of us. Someone came up to me once at church and said, ah, yes, but Sam... It's, it's harder for you, isn't it? The, gospel's, the gospel of Jesus is harder for you. And I, I was like, listen, if you, if you think the message of Jesus has just kind of slotted in neatly to your life, I don't think it's the message of this Jesus you've been hearing. Because he just upends everything. But in a way, we, we come to cherish. He's wiser than us. So, because of how Jesus calls all of us, and then the final thing is this, because of what Jesus uniquely offers, and there could be any number of things I could say under this, so I'm just going to say one. Um, in John chapter uh, 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, if you, if you know John's gospel, Jesus, there's a few times Jesus makes these big I am claims. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if I'm completely honest, the first time I heard Jesus, you know, saw that Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, I was a little underwhelmed. Because when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm like, oh, I need that. I need you to be that for me. I need, I need a shepherd. I'm, a, I'm an idiot sheep. I don't know what I'm doing. I need you to guide me. I need you to be a good shepherd. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, again, I'm thinking, I need that. I need that direction. I need life. I don't, I don't have life without Jesus. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, my initial response is, uh, okay, I mean, well done. Good to have that on your resume kind of thing. I like bread. I'm pro-bread. Does that help? 
Um, I was having lunch with, with someone a couple of days ago, and I can't remember where we went now, but we went out to, to eat, and the waiter came up and said, would you like bread for the table? And we both kind of looked at each other and went, no, we're good for now. We'll just wait for the main kind of food that we've ordered to arrive. And so when we hear Jesus say, I'm the bread of life, we think he's saying, would, would sir like a bit of religion for the table? And you can take it or leave it. If you're in a slightly religious mood, then go for it. If you're not, that's fine. But at the time of Jesus, if you didn't eat bread, you didn't live. No bread meant no life. You would spend every waking hour working to ensure that the next day you would have bread to eat. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, Jesus is saying, I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, Jesus is saying, I am the one relationship that will never disappoint you, that will never let you down. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I am the only one who can satisfy you at the very deepest level. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here's the thing. We, we're all looking for the bread of life in, in, in different places. And one of the big places today is we're looking for the life in romantic fulfillment because every Netflix miniseries, every book, every whatever it is, everything is telling us Romantic fulfillment is the key to a complete and full life. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Nothing else can be. So because I'm older than you, I get to say this to you. If you marry someone, if you get together with someone because you think that person is going to fulfill all of your emotional needs... You are going to be a nightmare to be married to. You will be putting such a demand on the other person that they can't possibly deliver that you will either crush them with the pressure or they will just take advantage of you because of your neediness. Because Jesus says he is the bread of life. And for some of us, it might be something completely different that we're looking for the bread of life in. It might be money, it might be power, it might be popularity, it might be prowess. It might be the perfect family, it might be advancing up in the career. But whatever it is, the proof that Jesus is the bread of life is that whatever you're chasing, you will never have enough of it. And any time you seem to pick up into the sort of, ah, oh, this is the level I always dreamed of, and you finally crack your way up there, you will feel fulfilled for about 10 minutes. And then that ache inside will go, but I actually need more than this. Um, I, I should have written this down, but I think his name was Nathan D. Rockefeller. One of the Rockefellers was the richest man who ever lived in history, whichever one it was. Uh, this was in the, I think, 19th century. I'm not Wikipedia. I should have looked it up. Something like that crazy rich, okay? Unfathomably rich. And someone interviewing him had the, the kind of directness and, and foresight to say, listen, how much money is enough? And he said, and thank goodness Rockefeller was honest, he said, just a bit more. 
Because money isn't the bread of life. You can't fill yourself up with money. You can't fill yourself up with romantic relationships. You will just go from person to person, person to person, thinking, ah, the key is I didn't get the right person. This one is going to be the one where it works. Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, I, as it happens, I, I've never married. I've remained single. And there are times when I've thought, man, it would be nice to be married. I've got lots of friends who are married with kids. Occasionally, I'll visit one of them, and I'll see their fa- family life, and I think, man, that, that looks so cool. I wish I had that. Other times, with the very same family, I can be around there thinking, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and... How long do I have to stay before it's rude if I leave? Because I kind of want to go home right now. But here's the thing. If we have Jesus, we begin to realize it doesn't matter whatever else I may or may not have in this world. Because Jesus is the bread of life. Um, I'm, you know... Sometimes people ask me, do you think you, you might get married, though? And I'm like, well, I'm in my late 40s now. I think there's a sell-by date thing going on. Um, but at the end of the day, actually, I don't really care. I mean, I think marriage is great. I've got lots of friends who are married. I'm, I'm a minister. I take weddings from time to time. I'm, I'm pro-marriage. But actually, if you have Jesus, you realize your sense of fulfillment and happiness and meaning is not contingent on your marital status. It's not contingent on your bank balance. It's not contingent on what your grades are or what your degree is or what your job title is. Actually, you realize that the one thing that really matters is knowing Jesus because he is the bread of life. Well, I'm going to pause. I'm going to say a quick prayer for us. Uh, then we're going to move into our, our time of, of... says Q&A. A friend of mine calls it Q&R. It's question and response. I can't guarantee an answer, but I can guarantee a response. But the response might be, I don't know the answer, but that's okay, because I'm not the bread of life either. So let me just say a prayer for us. Our Heavenly Father, when we think of all that Jesus is for us, all that he's done for us, it feels profoundly inadequate simply to say that we thank you for Jesus, but we still nevertheless find our hearts wanting to say we thank you for Jesus father thank you that he came into this world as a human being thank you for all that he taught that we could finally understand our true nature understand our true selves understand what we need from him and father thank you that Jesus didn't just turn up to point out what isn't right but to help us, even to the extent of of giving up his own life for us. Thank you that he's that committed, that he's that all in, that he's that good. And we pray you help us, if we haven't yet, to trust him. And if we have, to continue. Because we pray in his name. Amen.